for everything. Uh, you're, you're a good God. I, no, no blessing in my life is there without you. And so we thank you for that. And I know, Father, each time we meet together, you have something that you want to say, that you want to change us by your word. You want to teach us. You want to instruct us. You want to equip us. So, Father, that's what we come here. We've stepped up to the table to, 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 to eat together of your word. And, Father, we just pray that you uh, bless our pastor to overflowing as he brings, breaks the word for us. May we walk away from this place today a different people than we came in. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do and all God's people said. Amen. Let's get our Bibles out. Amen. We are in the Gospel of Mark, if you would like to turn to chapter 2 of that precious Gospel. You know what this chapter is all about? Love. You know what this book is all about? Love. You know what this Bible is all about? Love. That is the consistent message of God's Word. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That, to me, is the essence of every page in this precious holy book. It's a reminder how much God loves me, how much God loves you. And we don't deserve it. We all fall short. We've, we've all sinned and messed up, and we do on a fairly regular basis, though we want with all of our hearts to live holy lives. I find that Jesus had called unholy men to himself, but men whose lives would be changed by their encounter with, with the Lord Jesus Christ. He did and said incredible things. In, in chapter 2, of course, well, you remember back in chapter 1, uh, Jesus had began his public ministry, John the Baptist preparing the way, uh, and then Jesus, his wilderness temptations over which he overcame the enemy. Uh, he begins his Galilean ministry up in the northern part of the country in this small uh, lake that is uh, known as the Lake of Galilee, using Capernaum on its north, slightly northwest shore as his base of operations at Peter's house. His mother-in-law is there, and Jesus had healed her of, of a disease that had caused her to be in bed with a, with a high fever. We had left off last week with Jesus leaving Capernaum on the Galilee, just looking for a solitary place to pray. And I think that's really the precursor to all of his ministry. Jesus, didn't he tell us that apart from me, you can do nothing? So prayer puts us in touch with him. That's all that prayer is. It's the opening of your heart to his. It's seeking him. It is asking of him. It is praising his holy name. It's petitions. But make sure that we engage in that activity regularly. If Jesus needed prayer, how much more do you and I make time to regularly seek Him out in a quiet place? Don't do it for the big show that the Pharisees did trying to draw attention to themselves. But Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, when you pray, go into a quiet place, a secret place, a secret closet, if you will, and where nobody else is around, just you pray. Your prayers that are offered up secretly, God will reward openly. That's what we need to keep in mind. There is a humility attached to that. There is nothing about Christianity that should draw attention to yourself. It should all draw attention to Jesus Christ. And when people ask you for the hope that is within you, you're ready to explain to them, I have a relationship with God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He's my everything. 
I surrendered my heart, my mind, my soul to him, and he's turned my life around. That's really the testimony of every single person in this room that's given their heart to Christ. Well, what we see in chapter 2 is people that have yet to come into contact with the love of Christ. This is a love that calls people to discipleship. But understand that because the invitation is given to all, that does not mean that all will respond. The invitation to come to God is yours this morning. The invitation to believe in Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God, Lord and Savior, risen from heaven, that choice is yours this morning to believe or not. He's calling you to Himself. He loves you. Greater love has no man than this, that He laid down His life for His friends. That's what Jesus did for you. Notice He calls you His friend. He loves you. He cares about you deeply more. How how would you not want to give your heart and life to Him? What have you got to lose by turning your heart and life over to Jesus Christ? I'll tell you what you've got to lose. You can lose your guilt, your shame, your alienation from God. You can lose all of that at the foot of the cross, and all of that can be removed from you. But that's the only thing you have to lose. What do you have to gain? Now, oh, that starts with eternal life, forgiveness of sins, washing and cleansing of a guilty conscience. All of those can be yours. So all the good can be yours, and he'll take all of the bad. What an exchange. What an exchange. Why would you not? If you have something better, please come up to me after service. Tell me what that is. You got something better than love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You got something better? Then why would we not? I'll tell you in a nutshell why the world won't. It prefers its sin. It wants you to accept its sin. It wants you to say its sin is okay. And there is a, such a wide variety of sin practiced by the world today. It doesn't really matter. But the world is out to th thrust down your throat its notions of right and wrong instead of adopting God's. So you're deemed a bigot, intolerant, homophobic, or a thousand other things if you stand up for God's Word. To me, the answer is not what I feel about these issues that are in society today. The issue is, what does God say about it? I want to really take me out of the equation. I'm a sinful, fallen man. I could get things wrong. But if I stand on the Word of God, I'll never be wrong because He's never wrong. I'd want to gently and lovingly and encouragingly try to bring people into the kingdom of God. They believe wrongly because they don't know Him. Be patient with them. Love on them. Encourage them. But what we can't do is say that their sin is okay. They want us to accept them. Well, Jesus accepted everybody. He never condoned their sin. He never condoned their sin, nor can we. We'll be called names. Increasingly, as the days go by, it doesn't matter. But Jesus got alone by himself so he could be strengthened. People dr draw the life out of you. You get in the presence of God, he puts it back. That's what happens in the world. It's, it's like you're an electric vehicle, an appropriate metaphor in this day and age. But you can't charge your car. No, no, that's not what I... It's like an electric... But your electric car, you know, it's a great... They're a wonderful concept until you get about 300 miles down the road. And then what do you do? You pray. You pray that you find a charging station. Now, I happen to know that 300, down the 300 miles down the road this way, there is no charging station. What do you do at the top of Raton Pass? Mm, pray, because <laughs> your electric vehicle is not going to come to your need. What happens is the world throughout the week just sucks the life out of us. 
It discourages, it demoralizes. So we come together on Wednesday and we seek the Lord, we praise His holy name, we study His word and we walk away ah, with the cup filled back up. And then the rest of the week, the world is busy sucking it out of us. So we come together on Sunday and we go, oh Jesus, fill this empty cup once again. It's like the recharging station for your spiritual electric vehicle. And until electric vehicle technology catches up with God's technology regarding what the human need really is, the world will continue to be very confused. Why? They need Jesus. They need Jesus in much older. Turn to chapter 2 and look at verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus was again entering Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, and so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them, and since they could not get in to see Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof. <laughs> That's an earnest person, right? I'm, I am going to see Jesus. If I've got to dig a hole through your roof to get there, we're going to do that. So he made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging it through, they lowered uh, the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is, this is, is to me glorious. This probably happened at Peter's house. He has his mother-in-law living with him because extended families typically live together. So it would have been his responsibility to take care uh, of his wife's mom. That's, that's totally acceptable. We still do it today. He was a commercial fisherman by trade, which kept him awake all night, and he'd have to sleep a good part of the day. But Jesus has called him from that past. But when he comes back to Capernaum, chances are real good he's back there at Peter's house. I've been to Peter's house. It's kind of cool. You know how they built their houses back then? They'd have this, this log structure, if you will, of, made of smaller logs, and they'd cover it and plaster it with mud. But the roofs, they'd set these wood beams across, then they'd cover them with palm fronds. And then they would try to make a thick enough mat that they could cover it with several layers of clay or mud. And it would be baked, and then they'd probably paint it white. And you could actually walk on top of it uh, you know, if you didn't weigh too much or the roof was built correctly. So what they're digging through could be repaired easily enough. It's not like drilling a hole through, you know, your tile or, or shingle roof on your house today. So it can be easily repaired. But to me, it shows an earnestness. How bad do you want to get to Jesus? You know, am I willing to dig a hole through your roof any day of the week? Any day of the week. I don't want any, aren't there, how many hindrances are there for us coming into Jesus' presence today? It's not the roofs of houses that stop us. It's the tyranny of the urgent. It's the busyness. It's the endless cell phone that goes off. How many times a day does your cell phone go off? And what percentage of those are critical calls? Something less than one-tenth of one millionth of one percent? And yet they tie up so much of our time. Social media, while it can be used for the glory of God, most of the world uses it for nonsensical purposes. Or political statements or arguing back and forth. Oh, I, uh, updates. The only update I need is found in Mark chapter 2. Heal the paralytic. I'm the guy on the mat. I'm the paralyzed guy whose only need can be met by Jesus. 
Now, we're going to find out what his need is. You would think, well, that's obvious, Pastor. Jimmy's paralyzed. Okay, think it through. What do you really think his greatest need is? Hmm. To know God through Jesus Christ, his son. How many times have you prayed and thought that was your greatest need? And God will never do that. He, he's not so trite as to answer prayers that are trite. He knows what your deepest needs are. So sometimes when you pray, the answer will not come in the form that you anticipated, but He will always in that prayer minister to your deepest need, even if you don't know what it is. And in a nutshell, can I tell you this? Your greatest need this morning is Jesus Christ. And He's all you need. He's all. Do you need a cell phone? Did you know that they don't have cell phones in heaven? What a revelation for some of you going, hush in my mouth. Really? Is that in Scripture? (laughs) There are no cell phones in Scripture for a good reason. We should think about that. The things that we think are so necessary today aren't even a part of heaven, aren't a part of our eternal existence. There won't be TVs up there. And you're thinking, life without TV? I mean, I watch that one-eyed bandit, you know, six hours a day, five, four hours a day. Hmm, what could you, what kind of man or, or woman of God would you be if you read your Bible or prayed or listened to praise and worship music or had a Bible study those many hours a day? And I challenge you to do that for every hour you watch TV, spend an hour in prayer or in God's Word or in fellowship or in praise and worship. I challenge you to do that. Just try it. You go, that's radical. Yeah, just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. So rethink, please, your priorities in life. That's what what the start of chapter 2 is all about. Paralyzed guy, rethink your priorities because your greatest need is not healing of your paralysis. It's not what you think it is. Oh, Lord, I can't live without this. I can't live without that. Really? Think through the priorities in life. I know we live in an age of busyness, but don't let it become your Lord and Master. Don't put yourself in bondage to the ways of the world, the busyness of the world. I mean, the Hebrews of the Old Testament had to work six hours a day from sunup to sundown, which means in the summer they were working 16-hour days, six days a week. That's 96 hours a week. Unless you work in excess of 96 hours a week, you don't have an excuse that you don't have enough time to worship God and to seek His face and read His Word. And I dare say there is nobody in this room. There's probably nobody in El Paso County that works 96 hours a week regularly. But what we should do is, even if we did work that many hours, I want to give all of my hours to Jesus. I want to seek his face. I want to pray. Did you notice that besides tearing up this guy's house, at least his roof, uh, not so bad a deal in you know, basically dry and desert climate, it says some of the men in verse 3 uh, brought this paralytic carried by the four of them. So he's on a mat. They're carrying, carrying him on, on a stretcher kind of a thing, if you will. Since they couldn't get to Jesus, they made an opening in the roof. 
Every time I think about that, you see Jesus inside. He's talking to people. He's teaching. He's got, you know, his version of a Bible open. And all of a sudden, a few leaves and twigs and dirt drop on his head. And then just... And I got to think Jesus is just smiling. He's just looking up going, this is so stinking cool. <laughs> you know, this guy really wants to get to me. Ah, yeah. I just love the whole picture. But notice in verse 5 something very particular. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, collectively, the four guys that were carrying him and the guy on the mat, all of them had faith, or they wouldn't have been trying to dig through a guy's roof to get to Jesus. They all had faith. Can I tell you, even if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, God will honor it. Use it. Can I tell you, faith is like a muscle. The more you use it, the bigger and stronger it gets. You want, do you, any of you guys pump iron? Don't show me your hands. I can tell. Pump some spiritual iron. Pump some, use that faith that you have. You don't have much faith. You don't need much faith. You keep exercising it. It'll be bigger and stronger than you will have ever imagined. Just give it to God. Faith. You circle that word faith there in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he sees yours right here, right now. I don't know where you think your faith is at. You probably have a fairly elevated sense of self-spirituality. Oh, I'm not so bad. Well, compared to Hitler, you're not, but compared to Jesus Christ, you are. It's all about who you compare yourself to. Doesn't the Bible tell us don't compare ourselves to anybody? But keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. We all fall short, and that should keep us humble. You are, can I listen carefully? You are nobody's spiritual superior. Okay? You got that? You are nobody's spiritual superior. You're a servant to them, Jesus said. You're the, to be the one showing them what Jesus looks like. You're, to, if, if you're slapped, then turn the other cheek to the Roman soldier, Jesus told his faithful. When Jesus, verse 5, saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, something I did not expect, nor did anybody in the room, certainly the guy not on, on the mat, he didn't, nobody expected what Jesus said. What they expected was, well, come on in. This is Centura Health, where you see health at Memorial Hospital, so this is the emergency room. Come on in, we'll make you better. We'll check out your condition. We'll do advanced diagnostics and give you the appropriate pills, and you will walk away healed. Jesus didn't say any of those things. The guy had not come looking for his sins to be forgiven. Nobody does. Nobody in this world does. We are loath to even admit the fact that we are sinners. We want our sins justified. The world wants you to think that all of its sins is okay. It wants you not only to accept their immorality, they want you to embrace it. It's not enough that you accept their sin. They want you to say it's an acceptable lifestyle approved by God and it's fine. And it is not. Jesus said to him, addressing the man's deepest need, your sins are forgiven. That's a highlighter passage for you this morning. It is the only reason Jesus came to this earth. We're coming up on the Christmas season but you need to understand what Christmas is all about. 
the very moment in time, the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4 says, that God entered the human fray in the frailty of a baby born in Bethlehem's manger. But understand this, he came to die. He came to die for your sins, to offer his life in exchange for yours. That's what Christmas is all about. He came. His whole mission, his whole reason for existence and purpose was to reconcile us to God. You can accept that or you can reject that. Many reject because they prefer their sins. Romans chapter 1 tells us that's the way the world thinks. It doesn't want to confess its sins. It doesn't even believe that it does sin. That word is not a part of the very vocabulary. But understand this, your sins are forgiven is the very reason Jesus came to earth. Jesus did not come to earth to give us a cushy life to feed our flesh or indulge our wants, lusts, and desires. Jesus did not come to make each one of us healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Most of us are none of the above. This time of year, we all got colds and flus and, and whatever else have you, and it's not because you lack faith. You should always ask that God heal you, but our greatest need is not healing of physical infirmity. Our greatest need is not prosperity. Our greatest need is not that God would grant me all of my wishes and desires. The fulfillment of our carnal, earthly desires and the flesh, that is not why Jesus came. He came to forgive sins. Have your sins been forgiven? Or do you bear the burden of that yourself? The burden of that sin will kill you. Eventually, it'll result in your eternal damnation if you hang on to it. Why would you not surrender it? Why would you not ask Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior of all? Don't just believe. A lot of people follow Jesus for poor reasons. Jesus confronted them one time and said, You're following me because I fed the 5,000. It's a poor reason to follow Jesus. I'm sure after this, people say, well, I'm following because I, got, I know some paralyzed guys that need to be healed. That's not why he came. The miracles that he did simply showed that he had the power and the authority to be the Son of God and to heal. That's why he demonstrated these, these things. Not only did he fulfill scriptures like out of Isaiah 52 and 53 and many other scriptures, but he came to show that he had the power to not only raise the dead, not only to heal the paralyzed folks, but the power to forgive sins. And that's what you see next. In verse 6, now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I hate to admit that the self-righteous Pharisees and religious leaders are right, but in this case, they are. Who can forgive sins but God? You're right. Jesus is God. You don't like it? Deal with it. Tough. <laughs> he is God. That's why he can do the things that he did. Jesus said later on in, in his testimony to his disciples, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I don't know what you're looking for. Pagans around the world today say, well, show me God and I'll believe. That's easy. Open up any encyclopedia on planet Earth and look up Jesus Christ. 
It says he was born, he lived, he died, he was buried and rose from the dead on the third day. And it treats all of those as historical fact, not religion, not your opinion or mine. Every single encyclopedia that I've ever found in any university library in America always treats these facts of Christianity to be representative of the fact that Jesus said He was the Son of God. He was God in flesh. That's what the incarnation is all about. That's what Christmas is all about, God in flesh appearing. It says in Philippians, in Him dwelt all of the fullness of deity. That kind of ends the conversation. By the way, Muhammad never said that about himself, nor did Buddha, nor did any of the Hindu deities. You realize all of the other religions of the world never made claims like Jesus did? None of them claimed to be God. None of them rose from the dead. None of them did the miracles that are recorded for us page after page after page after page in the New Testament. And while Jesus' own enemies said, well, he's doing his miracles by the power of Satan, they couldn't deny the fact that he was doing miracles. They couldn't. Jesus, he's God. Why would you not surrender your life to the one who gave his life for you? Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So he's, the mistake that they did make in this sentence, who can forgive sins but God? That is true, but he's blaspheming. He's not blaspheming if it's true. If he's God, it's not blasphemy. God can heal, God can forgive sins. It's not blasphemy. That's where they messed up. They saw Jesus as just a man, just a carpenter, a friend of fishermen and tax collectors. They refused to see him as the Christ who was prophesied about throughout the Old Testament all the way back to the time of Moses. They refused that because Jesus didn't stack up to the Messiah they wanted. They wanted a God of health and wealth and prosperity. That's not why Jesus came. They wanted somebody to drive Rome out of Dodge so they could rule and reign on high. That's not why Jesus came. A lot of people have different expectations of Jesus. Oh, he's all lovey-dovey and ooey and gooey. Really? He's also a God of judgment, a God of wrath. But we only want to look at the Jesus that makes us feel most comfortable. We don't like that edgy Jesus that drives out the money changers at the point of a whip. We don't want that Jesus that confronts people in there. Oh, no, 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 we don't like that. That's a little too edgy. So we make the same mistake they do. They had their, their expectations of what the Messiah was going to look like when he came, and they were wrong. Jesus came for one reason only, that your sins might be forgiven. And we've got to hang on to that as a cardinal tenet of the Christian faith. Otherwise, we can get so sidetracked. Why did Jesus come? Was it to make me rich, healthy, wealthy, prosperous, a man or woman of influence? Does he want me to own a yacht, have a home on Maui? That's not why he came. You're missing the boat. You're putting the car before the horse. That's not why he came. He promises to take care of all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, but nothing said about your wants. I want a new Cadillac. I want a hot dog, too. So what? It's not going to appear magically in my hand any more than that Cadillac in your driveway. What I really want is the perfect will of God. So they made a mistake in thinking that he was blaspheming. 
but they also mistook the fact that he is God. They thought it was blasphemy. It's not if you're God. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. They hadn't said it out loud. He read their mail. You don't have to say it out loud. Can I tell you this? None. This is a scary thought. You ready? None of your thoughts are secret. God reads you like an open book, a cheap dime store novel. Nothing is hidden from his sight. You know what? And he loves you anyway. Is that too weird or what? He loves you anyway. He wants to wash away all of that garbage. Man, he loves you. He loves you. They were thinking in their hearts, why are you thinking this things, Jesus said? Which is easier, verse 9, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your mat, and walk? Okay, now think that through for just a second. If I say, eat ominous for eat your biscuits, your sins are forgiven. Who knows? I can't, that's invisible. You don't know whether you're forgiven or not. But Jesus said, now, which is easy, it's easier to say that. Tell you what, let me do the harder thing to prove to you that I have the authority to heal sins, check this out. I'm going to tell this guy, rise up and walk, take your mat with you. Or, excuse me, would you like to try first? Now, there's a thought. They couldn't do it. Buddha can't do it. Muhammad can't do it. And the people that follow them and the Sikhs and the other deceived religions out there, I'm sure these people are devout and sincere, but they are sincerely wrong. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes unto the Father but by me. And you say, that's a pretty narrow path. Well, it's the only path. You want to get to heaven or not? Everybody wants to get to heaven, but nobody wants to pay the price, which is surrender, total surrender, of all of you, to all of him. That's what's required of you. Jesus said, pick up your cross daily and come and follow me. It's his goal to make disciples of us now that our sins have been forgiven. A disciple is one who is disciplined, same word, root word of that, one who seeks after him, follows after him, makes him Lord of every situation that is out there. Which is easier? <laughs> But Jesus said, okay, but, verse 10, that you may know, that you may know that the Son of Man, his favorite self-designation, oh, this is the Son of God, yes, but he came to forgive the sins of man, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralyzed guy, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And he got up, took up his mat, walked out in full view of them all. And everybody, I'll bet, went, Really? Pharisees couldn't do that. Jesus' critics couldn't do that. Hmm. So that you might know. Everybody in the room is now without excuse. You want to put me to the test? Okay, I'll, I'll show you the authority. I'll show you power. Yes, I can forgive sins, but you wouldn't be able to verify that because that's an invisible and spiritual surgery that's taking place. But that you might know I have power and I have authority. I'm going to do that which you cannot do. I'm going to tell this guy, why don't you rise up off your mat, walk, and, and, and show everybody that God has healed you. So verse 12, he got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everybody. They praised God. That's the purpose of miracles, is to simply confirm to you what you already know. Jesus is Lord. 
Jesus is Lord. Can he heal? Absolutely he can heal any old time he wants to. I love this whole passage. Gets most personal when I see myself as the paralyzed guy. Because of what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Doesn't that make you and I then paralyzed? You can do nothing apart from him. You have to learn that. Oh, you have to learn that in your heart of hearts. In my flesh dwells no good thing. And I have no life apart from him. He is my everything. I live for him. I give my life to him. It amazed everybody. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. <laughs> All other religious pretenders fall away upon the reading of chapter 2. In the Quran, the book, the holy book of the Muslim religion, Muhammad never claimed to be the son of God. He never claimed to do one single miracle, and none are recorded in his own Quran. He could not save anybody. There was no resurrection on his deathbed. Told his daughter, I cannot save you. And why does a quarter of the earth's population follow him? They're deceived. Isn't that Satan's job in the world today? Deception? Whether over religion or lifestyle or sins or drugs or a thousand other issues. Which is easier to say. <laughs> it's easy to claim you can do it. It's a whole other thing to show people and demonstrate the fact that you can do it. Jesus proves he has the authority. And nobody ever claimed that. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Confucius, not any of the Hindu deities. Not even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can do what Jesus did in this one single incident. Verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. And a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And he, as he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and, and followed him. The crowds were constantly coming and following after Jesus, but not all of them for the right motives. They wanted to follow Jesus for what they could get out of Jesus. Give me food. Give me healing. Give me this or that. The crowds kept coming and he kept uh, teaching them. They continuously and continuously kept pressing in upon him. And out of all of the crowds and all of the multitudes, listening to the voice of his father in his ear, it says, verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus. Now, Levi was a tax collector, uh, collecting taxes right there in or and around Capernaum. And because Jesus has been ministering now for a number of months, I know that he knew about Jesus. He probably saw Jesus before, inasmuch as they're both in the town of Capernaum, which quite frankly, this sanctuary right here is about the size of one quarter the size of Capernaum, ancient Capernaum. I mean, it's not a large place. It's kind of a deal where everybody knows everybody. They did back then. So there's no doubt in my mind that he knew about Jesus, had not committed himself to Jesus, thought himself unworthy. Now, his given name is, is Levi, and Matthew, gift of God, is his apostolic name. You read about that other name in Matthew chapter 9 and again in chapter 10. Like Simon, son of Joseph, uh, he was renamed Peter. 
Petros in the original language. Uh, Simon is simply a shortened form of Simeon, that Old Testament tribal name out, out of the uh, Old Testament. But Jesus gave him a new name, and he called him Petros, which is a large shelf of rock as opposed to a small stone. Literally, Jesus gave him the name Rocky. Now, there's a whole set of instructions to go with that all by itself. Called him Rocky. Yo, Rocky. <laughs> he just, I love everything about that. He did not name him that because he was an immovable rock in his faith. Jesus did not name him for who he was, but who he was going to become. Do you understand that? He gave him the name Peter because that's your destiny according to the will of God. You're not that guy yet. You're a work in progress. But hang in there and you will be a rock, a foundation stone in this thing called the kingdom of God. You know, Matthew, looking at him, was not a man of good character. In fact, if he was a good Jew, he'd have never taken the role of tax collector. They were seen as traitors in turncoats, employees of the Roman Empire, and they, by and large, were known as extortioners, unfair people that gouged folks out of, out of their money. They would charge above and beyond what was required by way of Roman taxes, and they would enforce their will upon the people at the point of a Roman spear. You say, well, that's un unfair and that's, yeah, that's why he was not a good Jew. He was not a good man. In fact, being an honest tax collector was so rare, there was found one tomb in ancient Rome that was inscribed to an honest tax collector. I, I don't know if tax collectors are still the same today or not. I find it worrisome that we just doubled the size of the IRS. 87,000? Oh, they're just going after the rich guys. There's not, there are not nearly that many billionaires in America. You understand? There's only 300 billionaires in all of America. And they hire 87,000 to go after who? Them? Ah, the, the math doesn't add up. It, it would be easy for us to, be to disdain IRS enforcers. You ever been audited? Not a pleasant process. I was audited one time. This was years ago when I was living down in security in a house we rented from my mom that was a real derelict property. And I thought, you came, uh, you want, you're, you're looking at my taxes? Are you kidding? At the time, I think I made $12,000 a year or something like that. I thought, you, got, you really got nobody better to hound? You know what they said? They said, well, we can't believe a guy of your income is giving that much to a church. So you're, you're, you're auditing me because you don't like how much I gave to the church. And they said, no, we don't believe that anybody in your income strata would, would give that much to the church. And I, and I said, well, here's all of my checkbook registers. And they spent the next couple of hours going through each and every one of every single one of them. And they said, well, looks like you gave that much money to the church. <laughs> what I should have said is, is your name Matthew? Is you, are you the Levi, the tax collector dude? If, if so, can I tell you that? You need Jesus. 
You need Jesus because what you, what you don't need is the pittance of, of taxes that I make. But uh, when a tax collector acknowledges the fact that he needs Jesus, lives are turned around in a glorious fashion. But he was not a good man. He was uh, such a rare individual. And what Jesus says to him is something that would have never been found on the lips of a Jew. Follow me. Understand the Jews despised these guys. They despised tax collectors like, like you can't even imagine. And so Jesus commands him, follow me. Jesus asks, follow me, very carefully, honest. Jesus says, you follow me, but doesn't make him do it. That's how you became a Christian. Jesus said to you, follow me. But he didn't put a gun to your head and say, become a Christian or die. Nobody made you become a Christian. Oh, he drew you to himself. The Holy Spirit was working on your heart, but you had to respond. Do you see how faith and repentance and God's sovereignty all come together in that moment called salvation? Yeah, Matthew didn't have to respond. In fact, I remember another rich young ruler who didn't respond. And he walked away. Nobody's going to make you become a Christian. The invitation is given to all. But understand this, you have to respond to that invitation. You've got to personalize it. You've got to repent of your sins. What does that mean? Say that what you've done is sin and selfish, self and misdirected and guided. You need Jesus to forgive you all of your sins. There is no one that has not sinned. But the fact that he wants me to follow him is unspeakable privilege. Can I be delicate about this? He doesn't need you. He wants you. But he doesn't need you. There is nothing you can offer God that would enrich him. But he wants you so desperately, so much so that he allowed his own son to be crucified. A horrible death. He wants you with all of his heart. But you make the choice to respond, but understand the choices you make will determine your eternal destiny. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Half of the world, probably more than that, doesn't even believe in hell. To me, it doesn't matter what they believe. It's like the guy who jumps out of an airplane without a parachute and all the way down says, I don't believe in the law of gravity. Do you think that's going to alter his outcome? So people say, oh, I don't believe in hell. What does that have to do with anything? Hell is real whether you acknowledge it or not. It, it has existence apart from whether you believe it exists or not. That's a ludicrous statement, but the world, the world often says that to us. Look at the guy's response there in verse 15 because it's so cool. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and, quote, sinners were eating with him and his disciples. In other words, his life is so radically changed, he wants to invite all of his friends over. The only problem is all of his friends are massive sinners that the Jews hate. It's like a guy in a jailhouse who gets saved and invites the whole prison to come to a banquet. You know, thugs and murderers and robbers and whatever else have you, and you go, really? Is that, you know, who wants to go into a crowd? They all need Jesus. So there were many who followed in verse 16, and the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners in tax collectors. Dirt, dirty contact. They made the, and they asked the disciples, what, 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, that's easy enough. That's the ones that need Jesus most. They know they're sinners. They've been gouging people for a long time. They know that. Jesus comes up against these religious leaders called Pharisees and others called Sadducees regularly. They were hypocritical. They were envious. They were jealous. They were everything ugly you could imagine. Rigid, formalistic, lacking love and grace, legalistic in their interpretation of everything. And they had in their mind, oh, everybody who's not just like me is unclean. Aren't you glad Jesus came to pay the price for unclean folks like you and me? I'm the unclean guy. I'm the sinner that he came to save. On hearing this, verse 17, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Those that acknowledge I'm sick. Sitting on the front row this morning in praise and worship, my, my little man, my little grandson, sat beside me and he looked up to me and says, Papa, I'm sick. Would you pray for me? Uh, talk about a childlike faith. That'll touch your heart. So I laid hands on him and I, I prayed that God would heal him. God is sovereign. He will do what's best. I've asked God. I expect God to do wonderful things in life of my grandson. But it's not the healthy that have need of a doctor, but the sick. You and I are the spiritually sick. We are the ones who sinned. We are the ones who were without remedy. We were the ones who had an ailment, a malady that no physical doctor could address. It needs a spiritual remedy. And so we come to the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, and He does that spiritual surgery in us. That is why He came. I want to leave off here uh, this morning because there is a lot of meat on the bone on the rest of this. And uh, I, uh, while the praise band uh, comes up, I'd like to, to close with, with just a few thoughts. Understand this. If we don't get anything else out of this chapter so far, understand this. Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. And nobody else does. Nobody else does. You can't confess your sins to a priest and have them forgiven because they don't have the authority to forgive. Only Christ, only Christ can forgive sins. Only the Pharisees were right. Only God can forgive sins. But the question is personalized. Has he forgiven yours? And is that seen in a changed life? God has touched you. He's drawing you to himself. He has saved you. But you have to respond, and some of you need to do that this morning. The altar is open. Now, you don't need to come down to an altar to get saved. You can do that sitting right where you're at. But make sure that you confess your sins to him, that you repent of those sins, ask him to forgive you, and be your Lord and Savior, and he will. But there's going to be an evident change. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You have to say that you're a sinner first. Acknowledge that. And Jesus will meet you right where you are. I love what Christ has done for me because nobody else could. I can't do it for myself. Religion doesn't save. I'm not a religious person, nor was Jesus. Jesus was a pragmatist. It was practical for Jesus. This is where the rubber hit the road. A lot of people had false ideas about the Messiah and who he was and what he would look like and act like when he came. You may have some real weird ideas about Jesus and who he is today. 
well, he's just some good ooey-gooey shepherd that just kind of wraps us all up in his arms and everything's fine. Not unless you confess and repent. It's not fine. A loving shepherd will someday judge the living and the dead. There is a day of judgment coming. Now, if you accept Jesus Christ, this side of glory, all your sins are forgiven. And the only judgment you'll be going through is a works judgment. The good things that you have done for Christ will be rewarded. That's glorious. All your sins have been forgiven. So at the great white throne judgment, you won't even be there. All your sins forgiven. <sighs> if you want them to be. If you want them to be. Let's stand together. In every sense of the word, we're the paralyzed guy. Unable to do anything for ourselves and dependent upon others for everything. We want to depend upon you, Lord Jesus, the author and the giver of life and life eternal. Be our healer. Be our portion today. Be our strength, Lord. Forgive us our sins. Father God, if there is anybody in this room that doesn't have a personal relationship with you, I pray that right here, right now, you would touch their hearts and open their hearts wide up and they would pray a simple prayer. Oh God of heaven and earth, I confess my sins to you. I've fallen short. 